I'm in Studio B, sitting across from my good friend, Daniel Chacon. And I'm sitting across from my good friend, Benjamin Alida Sines. And welcome to another edition of Words on a Wire. Today we have as our guest, Maria Maloney, who is the founder of Mouthfeel Press, which is a local press distributed now nationally and producing 23 books, I think it's been so far. She's going to talk a little bit about her press and how she got started and all that. Should be an exciting show. And for On Poetic License, we have Conrad Romo, who is going to um, talk a little bit about Ash Wednesday. But I used to love it. You know how you put the ashes on the on the forehead? Right. You know, one of my favorite poems used to be T.S. Eliot's Ash Wednesday. Oh, that's right. I think I've heard you talk about that poem. Ben, you used to be a priest. Have you ever administered the ashes on people before? Sure. But now people administer them to each other, which I think is really a beautiful thing. I didn't know that. It's yeah. been a long time since I've been to church. Last time I went to a church, the lights turned off. And the door's closed. <laughs> but anyway, I, I'm really excited about talking about the publishing because... Yeah, you know, the publishing industry is a tricky business. Mm. You know, there's big publishers, medium publishers, for-profits, non-profits, poetry houses, fiction only, all kinds of publishing houses and things in between. And they all have their own different kind of... Um, I don't want to say agendas because that makes it sound a little bit pejorative. I want to say they have their own visions of what they want to bring into the world. And I think that they fight really hard to publish certain books because it really fits in the vision of what they are kind of want to kind of nurture this idea of what American literature is and should be and extend or subvert those ideas. Right. And that's really interesting. And I think a lot of small presses... Um, consider themselves to be alternative. Yes. I don't think that's always the case. They no. may consider themselves to be alternative. For instance, uh, nothing against them. Like McSweeney's, I don't consider them to be neither small nor alternative. Right. I don't. Absolutely. I really don't. Uh, I think they publish interesting things. I'm not knocking them. I'm glad that they're in the world. But it's pretty establishment. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's we're hiring an assistant professor in our department in creative writing. I'm getting a lot of um, applications, and I'm finding that it's harder these days to distinguish between a legitimate press and a press where maybe a couple of friends got together to publish each other, which happens a lot. And that distinction, because there's so many presses popping up every day, every day, some of them last a year, some of them don't, it, it's getting a little bit difficult to negotiate. I know, but legitimacy is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, it's like, Absolutely. what is legitimate and illegitimate? You know, yes, like, but, but there is a certain standard at university level of, of publishing. Oh, certainly. You, know, you can't have somebody being an, a professor teaching people who want to publish and their publication is called Brad's House. No, no, <laughs> and that's true. But, that was, but we should distinguish between university publishing standards right. and then just literature in general. I mean, there is a lot of poetry, good poetry, that is often self-published, you right. know, which is really interesting because I've been thinking about that. About self-publishing? No, not, not self-publishing necessarily, but I've been thinking about just putting a book out on the web. Yeah, you know, For free. that would be very generous. That'd be like a gift. I mean, I'm just thinking about these things. It's like, well, I may or may not do it, but I'm certainly interested in doing that only because I think, well, what is what does poetry do? What do we want it to do? Right. I mean, since nobody's making any money on this anyway, and do I really need 
a publishing house imprimatur at this point in my career? Do I really need it? And what do I want to do? I think at a certain point, we ought to ask ourselves as authors, what do we want to do? You know, and it's easy for me to say right now. Absolutely. And uh, I just finished a book of poems, and I don't think I'm ready to put it on the web. I, I would like to try to find a traditional publisher. And then, and then that's the other thing. It's my first book of poems, and I'm looking for, quote, you know, again, that subjective word, legitimate publisher. But I could see giving a gift to a readership if you've had a reputation. And I think that would be a really great gesture for you, and I'm going to hold you to that. Your next book of poems by Benjamin Alida Saint is going to be free. Stay tuned for more of Words on a Wire when our guest will be Maria Maloney. We're very glad to have Maria Maloney uh, in the studio today. She is a local El Paso writer, and I would like to say activist, too, because you're involved in a lot of community projects, from what I understand. And she is founder of a new press. It's, it's actually been around for a couple of years now. It's called Mouthfield Press. We've had many of your writers on the show. We've had... Laos Sarko. Shanath Carasa, and we've had... Gabe Gomez. Gabe Gomez, Gabe Gomez, yes. And Lara Silva. In the last couple of years, this press has really gone from being... A tiny press that one would think is just, you know, another one of those presses where people get together and publish their friends to a, a legitimate press, a press that has absolutely wonderful distribution, part of the independent books distributor. You can get these books anywhere. You can get them on mm-hmm. Amazon. You can go into any bookstore and order them. Mm-hmm. And even though it's an El Paso company, mm-hmm. uh, you have writers who are not from El Paso. Exactly. And she's a graduate of our UTEP MFA in creative writing. Absolutely. I was, uh, I graduated in uh, 2010. 2010. And, and I, uh, I remember you had me for an independent study one time. You used to come in and bring some poems about the cosmos. The cosmos. I love <laughs> it. I love the cosmos. And, uh, and I've also, Ben also was a professor of mine in poetry. Um, as well as Rosa Alcala, and uh, so I've had a lot of great influences. Well, well, we're really glad to have you on the show. We I thought we would have you here. Thrilled. We thought we'd have you here to talk a little bit about your publishing company and uh, sure. how it got started and what the future of it is, how you see the future, and uh, what is your criteria, things like that. So, welcome to the show. Welcome to Words on a Wire. Well, thank you so much, and I'm very, very honored and happy to be here and to be amongst both of you. You know, I admire both of your writing, and I'm very been very fortunate that both of you have been instrumental in my own development as a writer, and of course, in developing the press. Awesome, because I would pretty much like to talk about us. I'd like you to talk about Absolutely. us. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Enough about us. <laughs> yeah, that's easy for you to say, Mr. Prize winner. <laughs> what it, What was the inspiration that you had to found this? Uh, publishing house? Well, you know what? Actually, the inspiration started many, many years ago. And uh, I always wanted to do something related to uh, literature. I wanted something that would be inspirational, particularly uh, related to women. And uh, I was at the time when the idea first emerged, I was uh, taking a class with Dr. Stout. Uh, it was women and politics. And um, it was the first time I actually sort of awakened to the idea that we needed more information about women and the state of women. And uh, as I developed as a writer, the idea finally came, started coming to fruition. You know, I realized that perhaps 
the way to go about it was to uh, establish some sort of small press. Of course, once I graduated and I was 100% sure that this is where I wanted to go, I've had some experience in the past with journalism, public relations, and publishing. So this was not a unknown territory, although I have come to realize that publishing literature is a different ballgame, you know. So, however, I've been very fortunate that I've been surrounded myself with people who know about the publishing business because I don't know everything about it and I've made several mistakes, but that's okay. I go on. Well, mistakes are good because I really do think that if you don't make any mistakes, then how are you going to learn anything? Precisely. Where did the the name come from, Mouthfeel? Well, it was uh, in graduate school. I had already... You know, bef- I had already thought uh, that after graduation, I was going to be establishing the press. And so I was frantically looking for a, uh, a name for it. And I couldn't find one. It took me about two years. <laughs> and I kept toying around with something or other. And then finally... Like an example, what, what were some of the ones that you thought you might well, call it? Blue Border Press. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Coyote Press. You know. <laughs> nice. Um, Things like that. But I also thought that because of the idea, the idea that I had about the press and how it was going to grow, I needed something a little bit more abstract, perhaps something more general, something less localized. So one day I was um, at Barnes and Nobles and I was going through the calendars, you know, those calendars with words. Okay, the dictionary words. Mm-hmm. So there was this one little calendar of unused words that are no longer, you know, part of the lexicon. Yeah, right. And so I was flipping through it, just doo, 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 and then mouthfeel. And then I just like, boom, it just mm. clicked. And I kept going mouthfeel, mouthfeel. And the first thing I thought about was poetry. How, how wonderful when, when you create poetry, when we read poetry, we sort of have an aftertaste you know, uh, and even fiction. And so it lingers with us for a long time, just like wine, just like something delicious. So that's the definition of mouthfeel, uh, mm-hmm. aftertaste? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's actually used with uh, amongst wine tasters. Right. So, you know, nice. how's the mouthfeel? So I found, and not only that, but... There was another explanation for it, too. Like, for example, when you there's something so beautiful like a sunset that you can't express, you can't find the words. So it kind of feels you. And that is also part of the definition of Mouthfield Press. Where do you have the books actually printed? Um, I have a uh, printed out of Bookmobile prints my books. I've been very happy for them because they're very respond, you know, responsible, responsive. If I say I need a book, I know exactly 10 days, and mm-hmm. boom, I will have the book. And who designs the covers? Well, um, again, uh, one of the ideas behind the press is that I always look for artists because I think it's important that artists also have a space in a book. And for me, I've been very fortunate that I have had wonderful artists who have provided the artwork. In this case, Pulp was designed by Daniel Luna, an artist out of Colorado. Codex of Journeys was uh, Liliana Wilson. Gorgeous artwork. And, of course, Furia was... uh, 
by Moises Lara. Yeah, her brother. They have a, they right. have a really strong relationship. A strong, right? strong relationship. relationship. You have artists that, that do the images, but who designs the, the covers? The signs, the, the books, uh, I have, um, there's actually two people that I work with. Uh, one of them is out of San Diego, but he's actually a uh, El Pasoan, and uh, he has a job in out in San Diego. And then, of course, there's um, a designer here in El Paso that also helps me design, who is Sandra Salas, mm-hmm. out of Creative Gong. So um, those are my designers. And the interior of the book, I do. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is because of my previous experience in design. I, of course, you know, the design programs have come so far that I would not even know how to use a, a new one, but I certainly can use the most basic ones. And and really, what I try to do is bring attention to the poetry itself. So I try not to over-design. Right. or They're very, you know, as you can see, they're very simple. Are you the, the sole acquisition editor for the press? Uh, I actually, I am... The, the manuscripts come to me. However, I do have readers, mm-hmm. and I ask for their opinions. If I have a doubt, they've been very um, responsive. So, But if our listeners want to submit a book of poems, they, they should get chummy with you. Absolutely. <laughs> here. Maria we Maloney should. can decide whether or not your book of poems <laughs> well, can get published. Well, you know, the one thing about working with a small press is that you really get to know your authors, and... You really establish a good relationship with them. I have established a lot of friendships with my authors. You know, I mean, I've they're friends. Because what I want to do is at the end of the process, the, I want them to take complete ownership of the book. Um, you know, sometimes you you develop such close relationship with the while you're writing, and then suddenly it's gone, it's out into the world, and you have this, I you know, this is like, oh my gosh, my baby, you know, it's gone, mm-hmm. and then to reestablish that connection again with your book. So I feel that the author should be part of the process. I can do that because I'm a small press. Mm-hmm. I don't know how the bigger houses do it. But at least I can do that. Yeah. And, and that gives me a great comfort. And you've had to put a lot of your own money into this, haven't you? Absolutely. I'm for profit. And I can tell you right now that I'm, <laughs> it's not for profit. <laughs> There's no profit. But I do recycle the money. Uh, so it's more of a labor of love. So whatever monies I get from the books, I put them back into publishing. It's more of a labor of love. This is my mission. Mm-hmm. You know, some writers are writers, and they know that sometimes, you know, there's not going to they have to do other things in their lives right. to make a buck or two. I do this because this is my calling. You know, perhaps I could have been a, a poet of, you know, more of a publish my, you know, more work. But I find such gratification in doing this type of work. And so... For instance, is all you're going to do is publish poetry, or is there other genres that you're in, that you're publishing or Shana, interested in publishing? Shana actually, is yeah. a book of fiction. Yeah, is that your first one? Yes, it was the first book that I published, um, and so it was a difficult one to work with. Um, but I will continue to do so and to do short uh, story, and I will continue to do novella. I don't know that I could do 
fiction at this point in time. You mean a novel? A, a novel. That is a, too, too, too much for me at this point in time. Yeah. And I would have to find an uh, editor who does you know, exclusive fiction. We can handle novella because I have uh, editors within my circle who are novelists mm. and they understand so that's where I'm going next. We're also going to be publishing our first children's book nice. this year, The Alligators of San Jacinto. Alejandrina Drew. Uh-huh. Right. Oh, nice. Work. I was her thesis director for that uh, book. She told me, and that's why. And, and nice. we, have got, we are working on right now proofreading, and uh, the illustrations are gorgeous. Cesar Ivan did the illustrations for oh, her. Oh, wow. That's, it's an that's amazing. Great. He's a local artist, yes, fantastic, it's talented artist. It's an amazing, artist. amazing. That will make you money. That's what the publisher's <laughs> telling me, the children's. We're talking to Maria Maloney, founder and publisher of Mouthfill Press. Uh, Maria, I remember when you took an independent study with me, you were uh, writing some gorgeous poetry about the cosmos, mm-hmm. like I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. How come you haven't published yourself? Well, because I have been so busy reading and uh, reading other authors, and um, I find that that takes a lot of time. Not only that, but I'm raising a family, mm-hmm. and um, it's very difficult. To, I, however, I don't stop writing. I never stop writing. Um, there might be a surprise in the next year or so. So you would publish yourself if you had a manuscript ready? Yes, not through Mouthfield Press, of course, but I think I might be... There will be a surprise. I think somebody is looking at a possibility oh. of publishing me. I'm well, not going to say anything yet. That is enticingly vague. <laughs> uh, enticingly vague. And there was some of the work that I did with you during um, uh, some yeah, of our work together. Right. It's admirable that you're not here to self-publish. Absolutely. I really think it's very, very admirable. It's very generous of you. And I like your commitment to the whole publishing world that – that really, you know, there are so many poets that are overlooked, mm-hmm. and you're looking at mm-hmm. work that isn't necessarily being looked at by other people. So you're feeling a real need in the poetry and literary community. And so we should all thank you for that. Thank, well, thank you very much. No, I'm very grateful to my authors who have trusted me with their work. How long does it take to produce a book? It just depends. Um I've had books that we've been working on for anywhere from a year to two years. So I try to keep them minimum or maximum two years because, again, I'm a small press. I have to recycle that money. And so um, most authors are very understanding, and that's one of the things that they understand that that's one of the aspects of a small press. We're talking to Maria Maloney. Thank you for being on a show today on Words on a Wire. It's been a real pleasure. And good luck with your press. It's an awesome undertaking. It's been an honor to be here. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. For our poem of the week, we are having our own Maria Maloney read a poem from a new collection she just published called Pulp by Selena Villagarcia. Thank you. A Mother's Effect on the World. Looming at overhead, we swarm about like millions of butterflies, tracking invincible footprints in flower beds, graceful sway of wings, force that pulls the ocean out to sea, then back again 
to land. That was A Mother's Effect on the World by Selena Villagarcia from her collection by Mouthfield Press titled Pulp. My name is Conrad Romo uh, from Los Angeles, and I produce uh, and host a literary series called Tongue and Groove LA at the Hotel Cafe. And this piece is called Nopalitos. I am dust, and to dust I shall return. I'm watching ESPN, and Tony Reale from the Around the Horn program has giant black smudge on his forehead. If I were still a practicing Catholic, I too would bear the mark of Ash Wednesday, and I'd have something in mind to sacrifice over the next 40 days. But I'm not in abstinence. It's a, dis- it's a distant thought. The phone rings. BB? My dad says as if he isn't sure he dialed the right number, like maybe the phone number that I've had for the past 20 years may have changed. He says it as if he doesn't recognize my voice, even though I answered the phone saying, Hello, this is Conrad. He says it with a lilt in his voice as if he's also asking if I know who he is, even though he's practically the only one who still uses my childhood nickname. And a moment later he says, This is your father. He'll rarely use my real name. I was the first boy born to the family and was given his name, and for a short while he tried calling me Junior, but that didn't stick. The family legend says that my sister Letty, who was a couple years older, couldn't say baby and called me Bibi, and that did stick. Once in a while, a cousin, an aunt, or uncle will still call me Bibi, but for the most part, it's just my dad that can't seem to call me Conrad. Hi, Dad. What's going on, I ask. I'm afraid he's calling to tell me about someone who died, and I brace myself. My Uncle Bob has quit with his dialysis treatment, or it could be my Uncle Memo, who, because of Alzheimer's, has become a virtual ghost, or it could be his younger brother, my Uncle Joe, who's been bedridden for the past couple of years from a stroke. They're the old guard that I think of first. My eyes drift up to a little picture on my living room wall of two golden apples that my mother drew. As if he senses my apprehension, he says, No, I would just call him because La Moronita has no palitos again. No palitos, little cactus, or a simple peasant food, and the meal that he spoke of on a menu actually would be called tortas de camarón, which are shrimp flakes and egg batter fried into a kind of pancake and then covered in a diced cactus cooked in tomato sauce with onions and garlic. It's a traditional Mexican dish that fits with this time of year and avoidance of meat. I always believed that there was some significance with needles from cactus and the crown of thorns that Christ bore, but I don't know where I got that. I tell him I'll pick him up at his little studio around 7 p.m., and he gives me a hard time about not wanting to eat late. Yeah, okay, he says. Just give me a call when you're leaving. I don't say otherwise, but I'll just call him on his building phone when I'm downstairs. Tortas de Camarón will be temporarily added to menus from Ash Wednesday till Easter, and this will mark the fifth year that my father and I will partake in a weekly ritual while they last. It's a meal served with refried beans, rice, and tortillas. It's comfort food and prepared in a way with the same sauce that Mom used. We both decided the sauce at La Morenita comes right out of a can of Las Palmas, and it's the same one that Mom used for her enchiladas. And the cactus, we're pretty sure, isn't fresh cut either. It's probably straight out of a jar of Doña Maria, drained and washed and put in a pot with sauce, but that doesn't take anything away from it. 
I'll always have a champarada to drink, and Dad will have coffee with cream and sweet and low. Together, the bill will come to under $20, and my dad will pay, and I the tip. In my horrible Spanish, I'll order my dinner, and invariably I'm asked in English by the waitress, do you want corn or flour tortillas? And I think my ease, but answer like the bandejo that I am, maize. The waitress brings over tortilla chips and two different kinds of salsa. I asked the old man whether or not this place makes their own chips or if they just keep them by a heat lamp or something, which would account for them being warmed to the touch. My dad says he thinks they do their own chips here. One of us comments is always on the salsa being hot and salty. Today, there is also a bottle of some hot sauce with a plastic seal still on it. My dad wonders out loud if they just want us to look at it or if it's something we can use. It takes a little work, but I manage to peel the plastic off, open the bottle, and sprinkle a few drops on a chip. This has got a lot of vinegar to what I say. There was a time that I felt an urgent need for us to really talk. I wanted to know if it was as hard for him to talk to his father as it was for us. I wanted to know if there was anything he wanted to know about me, anything he wanted me to know about himself. I wanted to know how it was for him finding his wife of over 30 years dead. Did an ambulance manage to make it up the tricky driveway, or did it park out in the street and have to roll mom down to it on the gurney? Was he still mad at me for walking away from the employment line at the Southern Pacific Railroad or for wrecking his car that time? And before I went to Alaska, when we had that fight and I had my hands around his throat, what did he see in my eyes? If not for the Nopalitos, all we do together is watch the occasional boxing match or ball game. Part of the problem is that he mumbles and has an accent, so I can't understand him. He swallows his words, and I have to ask him to repeat himself over and over to the point that he gets annoyed with me. So I usually just make general acknowledgments that might fit anything he's saying. This one time earlier at a Dodgers game, I felt inspired, so I said, Dad, all my life people have asked me how I got my name, and I tell them I'm named after you. And because our name is not a typical Mexican name, I was wondering why Grandma and Granddad named you, Conrad. There was some stuff that I knew already about our name, but not this. I didn't tell him that I had looked up some information about a couple of saints named Conrad. One was a German bishop who drank from a chalice during a mass, knowing full well that a spider had fallen into the wine. And at the time, it was believed that they were all poisonous. So pious and respectful the sacrament was a bishop that he drank anyway. So now that guy is a saint. I didn't tell him about another saint, Conrad, who was a patron saint of hernia sufferers, or that the etymology of our name means bold counsel. Dad scoops some sauce on a chip, says, I don't know. La Morenita is a small family-run place in a little strip mall. We sit in one of the red leathered upholstered booths facing a widescreen plasma TV turned to a Mexican equivalent of VH1. The waitress brings her plates, and the portions seem small after all this anticipation. Maybe they're trying to make the batch last all weekend, the old man says. I know. Remember how big they were at that time last year, I say, knowing damn well that he does? He could hardly finish half his plate that time. It took enough home with him in a styrofoam container for lunch the following day. There was a time that I felt an urgent need for us to really talk. Now I just let our eating do our talking. We've tried other places like La Fonda on Cypress Avenue or El Tepeyac on Evergreen, but it wasn't as good as the way they do it here at La Moranita. 
Last year on Easter, on the final day of the season, we showed up for a weekly ritual. We're told that they had just run out of them right before we got there. It was early, too, not much after 6, but that was it. No more nopalitos till next year. I remember thinking that the old man and I would never have another plate of nopalitos ever again. He'd be turning 82, and another year is a long time to wait for a plate of nopalitos. But he made it. He hung in despite the plumbing job they did on his arteries and the complications and hospitalization that came after. He was back to his Tai Chi class at the Y, and he told me that at the water rovers class, people applauded him when he showed up the other day. When the check comes, they give $3 for the tip. That much, he says? Yeah, maybe they'll give us a bigger portion next time. For Words on the Wire, I'm Conrad Romo. We'd like to thank Conrad Romo for his reflections on Ash Wednesday on this week's Poetic License, and we'd like to thank Maria Maloney for talking about her press, and don't forget, go to mouthfillpress.com and learn more about her publications. We'd like to thank our producer, Norma Martinez, who sticks with us week in and week out. God bless her, because she's committed to the work <laughs> of Words on a Wire. I'm Daniel Chacon. And I'm Benjamin Alida Sines. Don't forget, the next book you read may save your life. <laughs>